Hello and welcome to That Tech Show, where Sam is trying to figure out how the hell to record using his microphone and his pop guard. Is that good? Is that okay? This is the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic. What, if, what is everyday technology? Look, I messed that up as well. We're going to carry on, though. I'm going to record this. This is going out as Sam figures out his pop guard. Parrots Pete pictured me speaking at a Spider-Man. Spider-Man? I was doing explosives to see if they came through. Is that better? Is that, That's is fine. That, is this that is all good? making it in because I think people need to know what goes on behind the scenes. They don't need to know everything that goes on behind the scenes, Chris. Just just the professional stuff. Anyway, my name is Chris Adams. That's Sam Gregory, who's messing around with his pop guard still. On this week's show, we have Nicole Smith. We'll talk about Flightographer, a company that she founded after a trip to Paris, uh, which led to a breakthrough idea. There'll be more on that later. But first, Sam, have you figured out your pop guard yet? I'm just going to hold it there for a bit. <laughs> what have you been doing this week, Chris? <laughs> Uh, well, I haven't been playing with my pop guard. That's that's for certain. That sounds rude when I say it like that. I wouldn't be playing with it unless you unless you said something. <laughs> Similarly, this is related. I filmed. Well, I'm going to have a guest presenter on my YouTube channel. Oh, very good. I, I travelled to not Chepstow, somewhere in Essex, <laughs> to go film them from from um, actually from Footprint. You know, remember we oh, had yes. Footprint Digital talking Absolutely. about sustainable websites. Uh, so as we continue to work together and try and find ways to support each other, there, there's someone who's very, very passionate about web accessibility. This guy called Steve Job. No way. Yes way. And he was he actually has autism and he's kind of speaking from um, his perspective on accessible websites and obviously some things you can do to make it more, you know, obviously accessible and stuff like that. And I thought that's a great opportunity to have a different voice on the on the YouTube channel from someone who actually requires some accessibility needs. So I think that's a, that was a great opportunity. So I went to, to Essex to film him, hence why all my gear is all, all over the place and, and currently holding my pop filter in front of the of the thing yeah and yeah so i recorded him that was good fun i've edited the episode i've got a few more tweaks to do and hopefully that episode should be out hope i want to try and get it out this week but probably more like next week well i should look forward to watching that episode that'll be good where can i find that well well on on youtube if you just search my name samuel gregory or the full stack agency but it was um hopefully it's one of many to come because i think we can dig into a lot more about you know nuances because like i say him he himself is autistic and he he spoke to me about basically he went on a bit of a bit of a um a rabbit hole learning about autism and and kind of the effects of it and and how websites can uh, obviously trigger um trigger certain 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 aspects i suppose of uh, you know how they're affected yeah and that overwhelming nature of lots like videos playing and things not being announced correctly so it just gave me a, a wonderful insight so hopefully we can dig into more specifically about that stuff because this one's going to be quite generic and um introductory in its nature yeah i think we we haven't really had anyone on this show talk about web accessibility too much i mean it would be great to get into that i've uh i really like the the whole web accessibility world i um I, I got involved with that quite early on. My first first job in London was working for a disability charity. And, uh, you know, we got into doing an awful lot around web accessibility because I wasn't working in technology at that point. Um, it was probably one of the things that started, you know, triggered me to get back into technology. 
Yeah, it's a big passion of mine. And, and you know, the long story short of it is, and we spoke briefly about this with uh, Bailey and Rubin on the on the sustainability episode, but SEO, accessibility and sustainability all come hand in hand. You appeal or you create a website that's um, SEO friendly. Actually, you know, probably more accessible is more of a foundational thing to look at. You build an accessible website, it's going to be SEO friendly and it's going to be sustainable. So these the, these foundational aspects are great to learn. So for web accessibility, folks, go and check out Sam's uh, Sam's new YouTube 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 video. What do you call them? A YouTube link video episode? Channel. Just check out my channel. Like, subscribe. <laughs> In other news, though, we were, we were talking just before, like you know the um, the, the the big public trial of uh, Amber Heard and, and Johnny Depp. I think it's fascinating because the reason why I want to bring it up from a, on a tech show is that you know I'm probably too well. I think we're both you and I, Sam, we're probably uh, too young to remember the OJ trial. Although there's an awful lot that's come out of it, of course, like the Kardashians came out of the OJ trial, essentially. And then you've got the um, you, you've got the Michael Jackson trial, which I remember watching as a kid. This is the first one that I think has been this big, that's been public uh, publicly available on the internet with YouTube streaming comments running alongside it. It's been streaming on TikTok as well. Um, and then there's all sorts of like videos of people on uh, social media platforms, notably TikTok, because that's pretty much the only one I'm on, where people are responding to certain things, things they've noticed. They've been. I saw a thing last night. There was a there was a there was a picture of uh, this supposed aftermath of a boozing session that was supposed to be in Australia, and someone's questioning it and going. Those don't look like Australian plugs to me. That looks like it might have been taken in the UK. And then people are following up and going, yeah, that, that, I can confirm they're definitely UK plugs. And I think that's just amazing that people are actually getting this involved and are actually trying to get these messages back to the lawyers. And um, my wife was mentioning this morning that she caught something when she was watching it live yesterday where something was brought up that had been previously mentioned two weeks ago and spoken about on tiktok and so that it's almost like the lawyers are coming back and questioning things based off what people are finding on the internet and doing their own research so you know i'm sure amber heard has it as well i seem to certainly be in in, in the johnny depp uh bubble and if there is one for amber heard i don't know but i mean certainly on his side from what i've seen and i think the uh there's people out there like he almost has a huge social legal team of trying to put this information together to get across to the lawyers. I think it's just fascinating the level of impact that it's having and such a public trial as well. Absolutely. There's a, there's slightly less surprising, but there's actually a petition to get um, Amber Heard kicked off of Aquaman 2. And it's got like 4 million you know signatures or whatever so it's uh it's a real social effort but uh it, I, I think that's quite dangerous as well at the same time like i say i think amber's changed her tune a little bit her she's probably been informed by a pr team that she's overacting in, in some of her statements or whatever she was very matter of fact uh yesterday very much like to the point calm not dramatic at all and she actually came across very actually came across very believable but we won't get into the nuances of whether johnny is a you know a wife beater or not but i mean trials are trials are a weird thing anyway because they always end up being a thing of popular opinion no matter whether they're public or not you know in in a in a local sense you know a public opinion based and um 
yeah, if she is telling the truth, I mean, she's maybe doing a bad job of of trying to represent it. But like, what if she is and she's just not representing it very well? Like, you know, I, I, trials are such a strange thing of decide, strange way of deciding things. But either way, I I, I quite enjoy the public spectacle. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> so as we said, Nicole is the CEO and founder of Flytographer. And in this very episode, she gives us an insight into what she calls herself a sidepreneur. Uh, while making the switch from a successful career and making that jump into starting her own company while still being a parent. There's some juicy bits in here about developing a startup effectively and efficiently in a brand new product market talk about hiring, Jim Carrey's birthplace, funding and investment, and speaking to the founder of a travel photographer service. We, of course, speak about travel and the future of travel in a post-COVID world. Well, without further ado, over to Nicole. So my name is Nicole Smith, and I am the founder and CEO of a company called Flytographer. And Flytographer is a marketplace where people can find a, a local photographer all over the world to book a, a photo shoot, whether it's in their hometown for like, you know, birthday photos or they're on vacation in Rome and they, you know, want to get some great photos in front of the Coliseum or they want to get like headshots for their LinkedIn or maybe for their Tinder. Um, so we have 600 photographers across six continents. And um, I launched the company out of my home uh, nine years ago, kind of as a side hustle. And so that's how it all got started. Nice. And, and just for clarification, is this like a just-in-time kind of service where I'm literally on holiday, I'm like, oh, I could do, a, could do a photographer and it's like a, a photographer's with you in half an hour? Or is it like you would pre-book that and it's just like, it's more of a, a lightweight photography service sort of thing? Yeah, it's definitely not just in time. So we handpick our photographers who probably hire less than 2% of the ones that uh, apply. And the ones that we hire are just like really good professional photographers. So they're not sitting around like an Uber would, like waiting for someone to call them. They're booked up. So I always recommend people book it, you know, a good week or two in advance. But sometimes we can book things within a couple of days notice. Cool. So Take us back then to how this kind of happened, like what you were kind of doing before Flytographer, maybe even before that, what you were doing there and um, what kind of led to this point? Yeah. So I think there's probably two things. So first of all, I have always loved um, just like international business and marketing. And that's what I studied in business school. Always loved meeting people from different countries, um, getting to know them. And I loved traveling. Um, I actually spent a year and a half in Asia after I graduated just because I wasn't ready to get like a real job. Like the thought of sitting at a desk from nine to five felt like prison. And back when I was, um, you know, graduated, like women had to wear pantyhose and like, there was just like, it just wasn't fun, you know, just sitting under those fluorescent lights, like a captive. So I'm like, you know, screw this. I'm going to go to Europe and I'm, or I'm going to go to Asia and I'm going to teach English. Um, so I taught English in Korea for a year, which was so fun. And then I, I traveled around Southeast Asia. And so then I came back to Canada and I was like, okay, you know, 25, like everyone else is getting a real job. I'm like this, like 
you know, slacker that's like holding out. And I thought, okay, it's time to get a real job. And so I started working then and I worked at a startup uh, out of Seattle actually, and loved it. And then I moved from there onto Microsoft and I ended up working at Microsoft in Seattle um, for about 13 years in, in different global marketing roles. And I, I really loved working there. Um, and I had no intention of starting a startup or leaving Microsoft. But one day I was in Paris with my, with my best friend. Um, I was actually there for work with Microsoft. We had these two days where we weren't working. And I was just like walking the streets with her. We hadn't seen each other in years. And we thought we should get a good photo together to remember this day where we're hanging out in Paris and it was so, so fun. And so we did what everyone does, which is you take your iPhone and, you know, you hold it up like this and you try to get a selfie, but it ends up just being your heads. If you, you know what I mean? Like you don't really see the city behind you because it's like just your heads in the photo. So then we give our phone to like a nice person walking by and they take this like rushed awkward shot. And then you know, her head would be cut out or like I'd have five chins or it was just like not reflecting what we were seeing or what we were feeling. Like I just wanted simply a photo of us with like all the Parisian architecture, like to get that sense of place, you know, that sort of third character in the story. So it was, it, you know, this was the problem that we were having. And then the next day we met a friend of hers um, for, for coffee and I gave her my iPhone and said, Hey, do you mind taking a couple of candid shots of us? Just as we walk down the cobblestones, like our backs to the camera, we're this big and it's mostly Paris, but I just want that sense of place and like to remember this moment by. And so she took a few shots for like 20 minutes. of just us walking from a distance, not looking at her. And when I looked at my phone after, I was like, I had goosebumps because I'm like, this captured the spirit of our trip. Like this actually tells the story and, you know, you really see where you are. And so that was the genesis of the idea for a photographer is like how, like, this was the best souvenir I was going to bring back. And it still is, I still look at that photo today and it takes me right back to that magical weekend with, with my friend. So then I came back to Canada and back to my job at Microsoft and I have two kids. Um, they were like four and six at the time and I'm a single parent. So life was pretty busy and life was pretty, you know, like structured with work and smooth. And the last thing I wanted to do was kind of think about disrupting that with a startup because I had seen friends go through startups and I knew how hard it was. But the problem was I came back and for nine months, all I could do was think about this idea for a photographer. And it was like literally bursting out of me where every day I'd be like, oh, I could call it this or what if I tried this? And so I just, I was like, no, no, you don't have time for this. You're, you know, you've got a stable job, like don't, um, you know, don't even, don't even go there. But I think it was about two months before my 40th birthday, where I was like, I need to see where this could go. I just need to like take the spaghetti, throw it against the wall and see if there's something there because it, it all, it almost came down to me thinking, okay, if I'm 85 and I look back at my life, do I want to wonder like, you know, what if I had tried that one crazy idea I had when I, you know, when I was younger um, versus like worrying that if I tried it and it fails. So I tried it. And then that's sort of how it all got started. The rest is history. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I totally relate to that photography thing because I remember uh, I was I was with a friend, uh, the observatory in Greenwich, which is, it's got this beautiful view of like, London. I remember giving my phone thinking, I would love, can, can you get a photo of me and my friend here? And I'm really particular with my 
photos and they took a photo and it was like as you said completely cropped in sort of like you know uh not a great photo like can you sorry apologizing profusely like can you can you get the like the background in please so okay and he's like standing there for a while and like 30 seconds goes by 20 seconds like as he like whispered to my friend what's this happening and then i get the phone back and he's then taken a video and just panned across the whole thing i'm just like thank you like just you know just try to be polite but it's just one of those things it's like you you want a good photo and it it really matters you know when you're away you want you want someone to care about what they do and capture those memories you know exactly and and you don't want to be like asking them can you redo that do you do you mind taking that again and but it is like these little moments of your life end up being these big moments in your memories down the road. Mm. Chris, were you going to say something? Uh, well, I was. I was going to. Um, I was going to ask. You know, you, you talked about um, what was it? Six, sixteen years. You said at Microsoft. Thirteen. Thirteen. 13. I'm, I'm adding years on for you. Apologies. Uh, so, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> so you're a fair fair way into double figures when you make the switch to doing photographer. Is is there a? How did you approach sort of? making the switch from being at Microsoft, which, you know, is going to be pretty stable as a career, right? Uh, working at Microsoft to actually moving over to, to your, your new venture and trying it. Because I think that that's quite a hard thing for most people to, to break out on their own. Yeah. And I mean, I had, um, I had switched from being a full-time employee to being a, a consultant or contractor after my son was born. So I had a little bit of flexibility with my schedule, which was great. And it's a, it's a very good income and it's a very um, balanced life. And you can kind of like dial it up and down with your hours. So I, I felt like I had the best of both worlds, which was even like, like more so in terms of like, I could take my kid to drop my son's at school and then I could do my work around my own schedule. Um, so it was, it was almost like a golden egg. Like I loved it so much. So it was super hard to, this is why it took me nine months. And so what I had to do because I wasn't, you know, I was 39 at the time and I couldn't just eat ramen and couch surf. I had two kids. I had a mortgage. Um, you know, <laughs> I had to like think about, okay, well, how can I make this happen? And so what I did in the beginning was I would just do it at night and on weekends and just sort of uh, what I call sidepreneur it or side hustle it and test things. And so it was like small tests, like hiring photographers that I found on Craigslist to shoot friends who were traveling to do sort of like proof of concepts and see like, did the, you know, both sides of the marketplace, like were customers interested, were photographers interested, where, you know, where were the issues? So I did a lot of testing and I, and it started slow. And so for the first year and a half, that's how Flytographer evolved was just me. I was doing customer support, working with a developer to build the website, handling all the you know, bookkeeping and marketing, like all of it um, in those little stolen moments when I wasn't at working for Microsoft or being a mom. And so after a year and a half of this, um, Flytographer started to get busier. And I realized like I wasn't crushing it at Microsoft because I was so overwhelmed and so like exhausted. And then I also realized I wasn't giving enough to, to Flytographer to see its potential. And I certainly wasn't being the best mom. And so I just kind of hit this breaking point where I knew I had to make a decision. Did I want to like focus on this stable, secure thing, or was I going to just jump off the cliff and see what happens? And so after about a year and a half, I felt like I had enough data or proof points to say, 
okay, customers love it. We have a really high NPS or net promoter score. Photographers are giving good feedback. And again, 85 year old me would want me to like try this and see where it went. And so I pretty much just like I sold my car, sold my stock, like lived off of savings. My dad, who's just like my biggest champion, thought I was crazy. And I was like, (laughs) what are you doing? Like, you know, he thought, well, you're working at Microsoft, you've, you know, you've made it like that. You're, you're great. Um, so there was a lot of worry from the people that love, loved me. And, um, so, you know, but I was the only way I could say to him was like, dad, I'm like this train and I want to track and I'm going, and I just, I, I can't stop the train. Like I got to see where this goes. And so, yeah, it was definitely crazy in the, in like the six month period after, I wasn't, you know, um, earning money anymore and the business wasn't profitable or earning enough to pay me nonetheless to pay anyone to help me. And then I decided I need to, to raise an angel round so that we could like, yeah, start to grow. Was it quite scary then making that, making that leap? Yeah. I, I think that when you're thinking about doing it, it sounds scary when you're in it, it's really it's terrifying because you're, you know, <laughs> for me, it was anyways, because I, I would lie there awake and think, did I, did I just screw everything up? Like, you know, I had this great thing and you'd see your friends go, going on vacations places. And, you know, I'm like worried about like, okay, groceries, like you're, you're just in a different mindset as an entrepreneur when you're bootstrapping and every dollar counts. And so those, those days were a little bit crazy, but I still like never once never once thought that I need to stop and go back. And I knew that I could always get a, a job again. You know, you have have skills and someone's going to hire you. So, but it didn't even occur to me, but yeah, it's definitely, yeah, crazy. Did, did you did you think it was affecting your uh, your business decisions at all? Like the the pressure that you were under? Yeah, I think that when a, when a founder is under personal financial duress, I think that, it's not, not good for the business. I think that, you know, a lot of people go through it and they, you know, they're resilient and persistent and they're tenacious and they get to the other side, but it's for sure a distraction because you're, you're worrying and the time you're spent worrying, you could be spending, focusing on your growing your business. Well, I was going to say the, you know, the thing you mentioned about your father as well. I mean, the, um, you know, I think like that, that older generation, um, definitely see things like you know you you're working at Microsoft or some other big company at the time. That is how you've made it, and you know you you work there. You you get into a good company, you've got a good career. There's sort of the fallacy about having a work there ten years. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a there's a, a fallacy I think, isn't there, about you you um you've got your tenure in a place, and that means your job's safe, which it never really is um in 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 reality. So yeah, I can kind of understand. Everybody thinks you you're crazy when you're trying to make make the break for it, and in a way, you kind of have to be a little bit. <laughs> but it it is. I think it's a really good perspective. You you know, the thinking about being eighty five and looking back on the thing that you didn't do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it, I I remember there's a great um, like commencement speech by Jim Carrey, the comedian. If you guys know him, he's he's Canadian. I think everybody knows Jim Carrey, right? Yeah, I feel like he's, global. he's pretty global. Yeah, he's pretty global. But uh, we'll definitely claim him. So it's good. It's good to emphasize that he's Canadian, though, because I'm not sure many people know that anymore. <laughs> yeah, us Canadians love to label anyone famous that's exported. By the way, um, 
but he, he talked, I remember I, you know, watching this, it was around the, this time when I was making all these decisions and he was talking about his dad and he was saying how his dad was actually hilarious. Like him, like his dad was the the guy that made all, you know, all his friends laugh and um, always wanted to be a comedian as well, but he had kids young and he wanted to provide for his kids. So he became an accountant and he set aside his dreams of being a comic uh, professionally in order to do the safe path. And he talks about how he watched his dad, like, you know, make these decisions and kind of give up his dream for safety. And then he ended up getting fired or laid off and downsized or something like that. So I think that the truth is like security is, is never a given in any situation. So if you over-index on that to miss out on potential and dreams, you might not be as secure as you think you are at the end of the day. And then you've lost your dream on top of that. So anyways, it was just another sign when I saw that, that uh, speech that, yeah. So this was pre making the jump. You had seen this, you know, inspiring speech. Yeah. I think that's always good to have or to know. I mean, we'll probably talk about it a little bit later on, but you know, during these endeavors, when it gets tough, sometimes it's hard to get that kind of motivation. And it's always nice to know. I think it's always important to know where these little pick-me-ups exist, where these inspiring speeches, whether whether it's, you know, Chris and I watched a series called what was it called? The the Secret Billionaire or something like that? Oh, Undercover Billionaire. Yeah. We're giving like a Giving out free advertising to Discovery at this point, <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but that, a talk like that, you you've obviously you know pocketed that, and that that was obviously an inspiring moment to you. And I think it's um it's good to have those because they they remind you of why you why you've gone into something in the in the first place. But going back to that time, you had this idea for photographer. I'm just trying to dig into a little bit of what led to the point of like this thing eating up in, inside of you. Was it more I don't know, anything that you sort of built your confidence on in terms of looking at what's already out there or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, one of, one of the first things I did when I got back from the trip to Paris was look and see what was out there currently. Like if I were to go on a vacation again, like who, who would I hire? Is there a marketplace for global photographers that are excited or easy to book somehow. And there just wasn't anything. And so that was like, we were the, we we're the first to market globally to do, to do this concept. And of course, uh, since we've launched, we've had people follow us into the space, but um, there was no, there was no solution to this problem. And so that was one of the reasons why I was like, well, uh, you know, I I'm solving my own problem. Like I'm, you know, I, I need this for, for myself. So I'm going to try to build it. Um, and some of the data points for me were all around talking to customers and talking to photographers. So the early kind of, I guess the first year or so pre-launch and then post-launch was just having conversations with photographers to say like, Hey, would you be interested in getting like, you know, side hustle shoots, like, you know, served up on a plate where you just, you don't have to do any marketing or business development or coordination. It's just like, here's the shoot on a plate, grab it and go. And so there was a strong need for, for photographers, because when you think about most photographers are self-employed and they might focus on weddings or they might focus on commercial work, but um, there's lots of pockets of time that are like kind of dead. So if you're a wedding photographer, you know, Monday through Thursday, you don't have a lot of bookings going on. And so to do like a, a one hour shoot on a Tuesday morning or a Wednesday night where you don't have to hustle to find it. Um, and also you get to meet different kinds of clientele, expand your portfolio. 
Um, and our photographers, the one thing that we filter for is, are you truly excited to meet people from around the world and show them your city? And so for those photographers that love to connect with others, um, it was a really good fit. And so I tried to just really do the research around talking to my audience on both sides. So, and then on the customer side, it was like, Hey, do you have this problem? Like is, and then customers that would go through and, and do it would tell me like, wow, um, you know, I've, I've never had photos like this for my travels. And this is the most precious uh, souvenir, you know, cause I'm here with the person that, that matters to me. And we've got this beautiful photo that actually, you know, represents what we did or saw, but they also said that the best part that they didn't expect was that one hour with like, you know, Johnny in New York or with Ku in Tokyo, who suddenly like opened up all these things about the city that they didn't know. So they get all these little insider tips on um, what to eat, see, do that enrich the rest of their trip. And so that ended up becoming a big part of the value proposition of photographer was not, you're not just getting someone who's going to, because it's usually about an hour. You're not going to just get this local who takes great photos for an hour, but you're going to like see the city through their eyes. They're going to tell you. Yeah. Travel guide. <laughs> yeah. It's like a travel guide, but it's like, like not a, like a scripted, like Contiki tours sort of no disrespect, but like, it's not like a, here's the, here's the program. It's like, hi, I'm Kimona from Santorini and here's what I love and here's what I like. And so these local artists that are like what I call very heart-centered human, you know, love to meet people will tell you their favorite things about the city in a very organic way. So I would say between the sort of customer side and then the photographer side, that was the data I, I used to sort of drive confidence around a proof of concept. And did a, I did a series of shoots pre-launch to like get feedback and like tighten up the process, tighten up the process. So that by the time we launched, I felt pretty confident that this was something that the world wanted to see. And, and with that tour guide aspect to it, did you ever anticipate that? as being like a driving key feature? Honestly, I'm kind of embarrassed because it's so obvious when I when I look <laughs> at it now, but I had no, it's not at all a part of, of the original plan. It was just the, the photos. And then that evolved into being like, and we have customers today. So we've been going for nine years and we have customers that have done like shoots every year. And it's been so cool because they, Maybe they'll come in on a surprise proposal or a honeymoon. And then suddenly next year you see, oh, they're, it's baby moon, they're pregnant. And then a couple of years later, they have a kid, another kid. And so we get to see these families at these big milestones over the years. And they always say, hey, you know what? Like it's some of our favorite travel memories because we know when we book flightographer, we're just going to get that slice of like local connection. And we know it's going to be safe and we know we're going to feel good with that person and maybe enriching our trip. So that's that's pretty fun that's great because i think you get that sort of um you know people really buy into to sort of life stories i guess mm -hmm. I, I noticed you've got the proposal page on your on your website i wish i'd known about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's honestly it's it's interesting because before i'd started this business i'd never thought really thought about proposals and how many things can go wrong with a proposal? Like we have learned all of the things that can go wrong when you're trying to propose in terms of like people photobombing the moment or, um, you know, just meeting in the wrong location or dropping the ring or holding the ring box backwards. So you're proposing to yourself. Like we've seen <laughs> all these like crazy things, but the craziest story was um, in, in 
when we book a proposal shoot, how it works is, um, you know, we have established routes and locations and customers can choose like, okay, I want it to be, you know, in front of the Coliseum or, or, or whatever. So they'll choose the location they want the proposal to happen in. And then we make a plan around, okay, which scenario do you want to go down? Do you want it to be like the, you know, like a stranger walking by saying, oh, well, I'll take a, a selfie of you guys if you like, or like hiding in the bushes from, from a distance where no one sees anyone. Like there's all these different ways that we can go about it. And so we come up with a, you know, whatever scenario. And so all these things are like mapped out and, you know, put in a brief and everyone's on the same page. Um, we even have a photo of the, the couple. So we know the photographer and they have a photo of the photographer. So everyone knows what everyone looks like, um, except for the person being proposed to, which is in our case, 95% women. But in any case, this one time the photographer shows up, he spots the couple, the guys in a, in a white dress shirt, as he said, um, he, it's the from a distance scenario. So like, he's not supposed to talk to him. He's just supposed to capture it from a distance. And so, you know, everything's going smoothly. He pops on his knee in front of the Coliseum. The photographer's capturing the moment. She's ecstatic. They're like hugging, kissing. It's wonderful. So when he goes up to them and he's like, you know, hey, I'm going to use a different name. Hey, Mario, like, uh, you know, I'm so-and-so, you're a photographer. And the guy's like, I didn't hire a photographer. <laughs> and then the, the dread starts to like, you know, the blood starts to drain from this photographer's face. And then he's like, what? What? Oh my gosh. And then he, he sort of catches out of the corner of his eye. There's another guy in a white dress shirt oh. that looks very similar to uh -huh. this guy. And he's just about to go down on his knees. So he pivots, gets in position and like actually caught the proposal oh. just in time, like <laughs> just in time. And uh, we, we get this photo back at HQ later of like the two couples side by side, because they brought the other couple in and they shared the story and shared the last. And like, you look at them and you can see why the photographer got mixed up because it was almost like a doppelganger. They were all right there. And uh, <laughs> anyway, so um, they got some free photos out of it, but I was going to say, did you make some money out of that or is it, uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. Um, so jump, jumping back to what you were saying as well during this whole R and D sort of phase. So, You've got a lot of people saying that, oh, yeah, I would use that service. The, the worry would always be like, are they actually going to be ones to sign up or use the service? H how do you build that confidence or how do you mitigate against that? Is there, I mean, is there a trick that you do? Like, to say, okay, sign here and, or whatever, because people will say they'll use something or, or, or whatever. And then when it come, comes time to pay, that's when you really find out their uh, their true intentions or whether they would actually use it. And that's where you find out if you have a viable business, right? If like people can say they love it, but if they're not going to pay for it to solve their problem, you don't have a viable business. So I think in the early days, it was super challenging because this was a new, like new market that didn't exist. People hadn't like, it wasn't common for someone to hire a photographer to say like, let's capture an hour of my vacation in Paris. Like, it was just unusual. And so we had the double challenge of not only being a brand new brand, no one knew what Flytographer was, but a brand new market. And we had to educate people on what this was. So there's a lot of education around the value and why. And how I did that was through two things. Number one, storytelling. So customers, um, you know, writing, writing stories and through blogs and social, like around their experience and having the photos tell the story in their quotes. And those customers then 
having a great customer experience and um, telling their friends about it. So word of mouth and really focusing on making sure that every customer had an extraordinary experience from end to end on their journey with us was like my biggest focus of anything. Um, and so that resulted in those customers then, you know, going and telling their friends. So that was one path to growth. The other thing that I did um, in the early days, I mentioned that we did an angel round. So did an angel round at the top of 2015. So I had a little bit of money to like grow a small team and, and invest in, in customer acquisition. And one of the first things I did was hire a PR company uh, out of New York um, who specialized in travel. And the reason I did that was we needed some social proof. We needed someone to say, hey, this is like, you know, a legit thing. This isn't just some woman in a in an office in Victoria who's like side hustling. And, you know, like I, we needed to like show people that we were legit and that this was something and so to get awareness. And so I worked with this PR agency for about six months and we got featured um, in some pretty big publications from travel and leisure to New York times to Oprah.com. And that was really monumental for us because we suddenly had the the credibility of like, we weren't this fly by night and people were interested in the story because it was new. So it was a new market. So there's something sort of top, you know, worth talking about there. So I would say those were the two biggest things for growth in the early days was getting some social proof to get the word out there and to give us that credibility of like, because photography is all based on trust and you want to hire someone that you can trust. And so that's one sort of ingredient. And then the second one was testimonials and like customers um, having just legitimately having a great time. Feels like quite a big leap to go for a PR company. I mean, I think your um your, your background at Microsoft was in marketing, right? So maybe that's more of a, a natural leap for you. But I, I think for for me or for uh, people who are maybe more on the technical side of businesses starting their own uh, venture, like you know, shooting for a PR agency feels like a big investment that may or may not pay off. I mean, how how did you approach it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not cheap, right? It's a big investment. You've nailed it. Um, I don't know. I just had confidence, I think. And this is part of being, you know, when you're like a kind of a founder, you, people think you're crazy because you see these things sometimes before other people see them. Right. And so, you know, I had a very clear vision of how this would work out. And, you know, I think a lot of people again around me were probably like, what, this is crazy. But I knew that if people, the right customer could hear about who we are and discover us, that they'd be willing to try us. And then it would be like a great path to, to getting exposure that way. But the other thing that I didn't bank on was, which became again, a byproduct was it brought a lot of photographers to the platform because suddenly they were reading about us in these big um, publications. And so then they were like, Oh, well, I guess. Yeah. So that made recruiting a lot easier. So then we kind of got tailwinds in both directions. Um, and then later on something that again, I hadn't banked for, but as I became more savvy in this area was SEO because we got all these incredible backlinks to high domain sites early on in, into our journey, um, which also helped, you know, boost our, our traffic. Was it difficult to then choose a PR agency that was going to be able to support you or, or did you already have contacts in, in this world? You know, it's, it, I had this one PR agency that was on my mind. I looked at a few, but I wanted someone um, in New York, because most of the major media companies are in New York. And my opinion on PR companies is 
you're paying for the relationships because they're an email away from, you know, someone, a writer at New York times or travel major, like they have those warm relationships. And so hiring someone locally here in Victoria or hiring someone that wasn't right in the heart of where all the media was, didn't make sense to me. So that like in terms of the media that I wanted to talk to my consumers, which are like women, mostly between like 25 and 55. So I needed to like find the media company that had those pre-established relationships with the publications that talked to my audience. Um, and I wanted one that was travel specific and, and understood that vertical. And I'd heard of this agency called Hawkins um, through, I can't remember who introduced me to them, but I had met with them or talked with them at a conference or a trade show. And then I kind of observed some of the clients that they were working with. And then uh, when I was in New York, I met with them and they were insanely good. I was really impressed and I'd highly recommend working with them. How did you then judge sort of the return on investment then? I mean, like how much you were going to invest but for or, or continued investment, you know, how long were you going to invest with them uh, in, in return for what was coming back to you? Yeah. So I did a six month retainer with them because I, I think with PR for the first three months, you're just kind of building, building, building. And then like, then you start to see the returns come in. But then after six months, I think you've kind of mined a lot of their best contacts and, uh, for me, it was it just made sense to kind of do it for six months, and then I think I picked it up a couple of years later and did another six month push. Um, but it's not something that I would do ongoing. What was the status of the product at this point? Because my fear would be, what if my product or service is not great, or I'm, there's still kinks to be ironed out, and then I'm getting all these eyes on it, and it's like a half baked service. Like, what 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 stage were you at? Yeah. We were, so we were, <laughs> oh, if people only knew. So we were like super, I, I call it the Wizard of Oz stage because we're behind the curtain, like, you know, um, with spreadsheets and like, you know, Zapier webhooks. And like, there was like, there was no um, platform at this stage at all. So for the first three years, there was no booking platform. Um, it was just emails and spreadsheets and thus like manually um, kind of like figged, doing things that don't scale essentially. and so. We, I remember very clearly the day they said, okay, you're going to, yeah, you're going to be in the New York times on this Sunday. And the whole team was like, there was like five of us then we were all hands on deck. And like, I think everyone was talking about it with their families. It was a really big, exciting moment. And then the story dropped and we were, we were like expecting like the world to come to our website. And there was this little loop for the day. <laughs> and there was a few bookings, but it was just like life went on. And, and I kind of learned that about PR after that moment. And um, we were on a show called Dragon's Den, which I think they have in the UK as well. It started there. Um, and so it was the same thing when we, we got invited to pitch on Dragon's Den. And, you know, you think, okay, this is going to change the world. Um, and it's the same thing with every like media thing. You get a little blip for us anyways. I'm sure it's different for other brands, but our experience was you get a little blip, you might get some bookings, but it doesn't change the game. It's more of a long game of like constantly delivering a great experience, you know, just kind of growing slowly, planting lots of seeds, harvesting them over time, but not like a silver bullet. Did you, did you pick up a dragon from your dragon's den appearance? Uh, uh, I got an offer from two dragons and I turned them down because um, it was kind of a funny situation. We had just closed our angel round. And a couple months later, we got a call from 
CBC um, here in Canada saying, you know, do you want to come be on the show? And I said, no, we just closed an angel. So we're not looking for funding. And the producer said, well, you should still come on because you'll have a million eyeballs on your brand. So like, even if you don't take the funding, just come on. And I said, well, think about it. So, uh, but she wanted us to be there in like four days and it was out of the blue. So we had no pitch. We had no set and I live across the country. So it was in Toronto. So I thought about it and I thought, well, okay, yeah, I should definitely, it's a, it's again, a life experience. So let's go. And, and so, you know, me and two team members, like, hustled, you know, got this like little set together. And when I took my son, who was 10 at the time, and he handed out little boxes to the dragons. That's my favorite thing, actually. Just like go back and watch him on Netflix because like the episodes on Netflix and like see like, you know, 10-year-old Harrison like handing out these little boxes. Um, but yeah, I got an offer from like two dragons and um, but it was like half the valuation. I just closed my 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 angel round out. Um, so I turned them down and as I said, you know, I, I don't know or no, thank you. And started to walk out one of the dragons, like under his breath, is like, well, she just made the biggest mistake of her life. And I remember thinking, <laughs> God, I hope, I hope he's wrong. <laughs> it was like, yeah, it was really funny. How did you pitch the, um, cause obviously I know obviously you weren't intending to go on it, but how did you pitch the sort of this much money for this percentage of the business for, for, uh, for Dragonstown? Was it, was it based on your angel round or? Yeah, I just said it was the same terms as my angel round, which is like two months earlier. And I, I kind of kept the terms the same, but then they want like, you know, yeah. What what were the, what were the terms at that point? The terms back then were, um, I think I went in saying 5% of my business for like $175,000, which would have been a really good deal for them, by the way, like <laughs> back. then uh, actually one of the dragons came in and said, yeah, like I'll do it for like five point." Eight percent or something. I'm like, okay, that sounds good. But then another dragon was like, why don't we partner and do this together, but for ten percent at the same valuation? And I was just like, oh, no. So, but then I learned later that eighty percent of the deals that are a yes in the den uh, break down in due diligence. So I didn't, I didn't realize that before the show. Yeah, they never cover that. I don't think, or at least I've never seen that part of it. Yeah. Mm. I'm keen to kind of dig in more because you've mentioned a team at this stage and you've mentioned angel round uh, investment and it still feels like there's there's a lot to cover in that kind of period up until that point. I mean, getting a team is obviously a really nerve wracking or you know, a big commitment and uh, preparing for, for investment is also a big commitment. So when what was your first hire and what, what was the situation um, or, or events surrounding that? Yeah. So the first, well, I mean, the first person that I hired was actually an, an old childhood friend of mine who I've known since fourth grade and she lives two blocks away and she started helping me with hiring uh, photographers. So she had a nine to five and she would do this on weekends and help me with the recruiting of photographers. So her name's Michelle um, and Michelle's still with us today. So Michelle was sort of like the first kind of person. And then um, we hired another woman who helped with some CX or customer support part-time, again, contract. And then when we closed the angel round in January of 2015, I brought both of them on as full-time employees. And then I think the next hire was another customer support person. So it was kind of 
really just to deal with the bookings that were that were coming in. And then Michelle was handling the photographer side. It was about nine months into that angel round that we hired our first developer. So a, it was really hard to hire a developer. A lot of people were like, I don't get your business or I'm not sure if this is the right business for me. And I don't want to be the person building this, you know, thing from scratch. But yeah, it took us nine months to hire the first developer. How, how far had you got without a developer? I mean, what was the product at, at that point before the first before the developer started? It was, it was literally like we had, we used Zoho, which is a CRM system and we had emails and we had a website that had, you know, like Stripe connected to it. So we could take payments. Um, and everything was held together with like bubble gum and glue. It was definitely not like at all a robust (laughs) site in any way. So there was, you know, kind of the customer facing WordPress site, you know, we had some web hooks to pull some, some data into the CRM and one of the things I did was I hired a uh, like a, a dev to create a portal for photographers to upload the photos because for the first six months, well, maybe a year, um, I was using like a cloud-based, you know, throw your photos up in the cloud and send them to the customer that way. So it was really figuring it out as, as I go. And now, of course, we have like an incredible, you know, um, dev team and platform. But in the early days, it was figuring everything out just by trial and error. I think it's really interesting, though, that how, you know, just how far you can get on an innovative platform without actually having a developer. You really get to see what your customers need. So you're not building it um, with a bunch of assumptions in your head. Like you kind of really see all the use cases and the, you know, the unique pieces and what your customers need. So when you go to kind of create your product roadmap when you're going to build the tech out, you really understand the features that the site needs to have in a better way because you've been figuring it out manually. The second thing is you, um, when the, like if you wear all these hats and like you're in customer support and then you're helping with product, it makes it easier to hire people because you, you know what the work that needs to be done is because you've been doing it yourself. Mm. I'm really keen because this this just sounds like a whirlwind to me, and I'm, I'm really keen to dig into what what was motherhood like during this time. You know, it sounds like there's so much going on, a lot of pressure going on. How are you dealing with the kind of parental side of things? Well, I think I mean there's there's good, good things about my kids being young at that age because they go to bed at seven, so like that was helpful. They go to bed early, and um, and then I could have like evenings to kind of work and and worry or you know cry or whatever I needed to do. <laughs> um, so that that was kind of good fortuitous in the sense, and they couldn't like now I have teenagers they're like you know, 15 and 17, they, they know exactly what's going on. I can't hide anything from them, but back then you can shield them from so, so much like, you know, um, just like, Oh, look a bird, you know, like they just, they don't at that age. They're so, you know, they're, they're so precious. I'm still like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I think it just kind of, yeah, I don't think they, saw a, a lot of kind of the the hard stuff that, that was going on because of just the age, the age they were at. But the nice thing about them being at that age too, is it was such a nice tonic to like the stress. So like if I'm sitting on the floor playing Lego and like crazy voices with them, it just, it, it forces you to not think about work 24 seven. So I think it was kind of good in that way because Kids are, you know, they need to be fed, they need to be played with. And those things actually are really good anchors for founders in some ways, because it forces you not to think about work all the time. Nice. 
So actually, I had a question as well. Like you mentioned having a team and, and things like that. How did you prioritize who you were going to hire? Like, how? yeah, just how do you know who to hire? And I think everyone's going to be different. I mean, it's just an assumption. But how did you, yeah, how did you figure out where the hires needed to take place? You know, for for a while, like it was just a lot of CX. And then we hired a second developer and then we hired a third developer as we started to build out our platform and evolving based on the roadmap. So that's sort of what drove like the developer side. And then the booking volume drove the CX capacity side. On that roadmap perspective as well, did you, did you actually, I mean, was it your mentor that kind of prompted that for a start? And is that something you actually have created and a following to to the book or, or how, how does the roadmap, how does it come into existence? And then how does that actually play a part during the life cycle? Yeah. So actually my former job before Microsoft, I was a product manager and responsible for the roadmap of a mobile tech startup. So um, that's where I first started working in product. And the roadmap that we followed in the early days was it was very raw and basic. Like it wasn't super sophisticated. We were a small team and we were like, very agile and like, you know, really constantly, you know, updating things and, and testing things. Um, and even today, like we're still pretty agile in terms of our methodology for our roadmap. Like we look out quarterly and look at what we, like we have kind of a, like a, like a longer term roadmap and then we kind of lock everything down quarterly and then we do two week sprints. Um, and so we've been doing that for probably like six years now. Yeah. And how big is the team? Uh, so the dev team, we have two developers right now, and the team itself is 14. And, and, and you are the sole sort of director level. Are you the sole kind of director of the, of the company, or have you brought more people in to support at the kind of board of directors level? Yeah, no, we don't really have a board of directors, but um, I mean, I have a leadership team within my employees. So we have like someone who's head of dev, someone who is head of operations, which oversees like our CX team and our photographer operations. Um, and then we have someone that runs marketing. Mm. And what was it like transitioning into a bigger team and and seeing the the company grow? And I'm just thinking how difficult it is to kind of rally so many people up and and have those quarterly meetings like you say and um what that transition was like of having a a large group of people dependent on on you and and the product yeah well it's it's like you're like the frog in boiling water it happens so slowly because we grew over so many years so like it was sort of like every year we get a little bit bigger a little bit bigger i hit uh i would say kind of a turning point in 2018 where i felt like kind of overwhelmed a lot and, you know, human resources and like people can be tricky. Cause like, you've got to like, make sure that your expectations are really clear that you're hiring people that are aligned with your values. And like, everyone is operating align in alignment. Um, and so much can go wrong. The more you grow your company, because you think, you know, things should be one way. And then someone new comes in and maybe they're not, you know, onboarded properly, or there's like so many, so many ways things can go wrong or people's, you know, perceptions can be like, you know, um, people can feel like 
things weren't clear. And, you know, we, I definitely felt like there's a period of growth where we were like the small team, probably when we were under 10, where everyone just knew what everyone was doing because we were small enough and we were all physically in the same office here in Victoria. And then as we started to grow, we, we went up to 22 people before COVID and um, we were a, a, a lot bigger then. And so then you start to getting layers of management and, you know, um, not everyone knows what everyone's working on all the time. And so I was finding that it was really tricky. And so I was looking for something to help guide, guide, like guide the company. And I talked to some, some founders I knew, and they kept talking about this one program called the entrepreneurial operating system or EOS. And there's this book called Traction by Gina Wickman that talks a lot about this framework. It's basically an operating system for running your company. And so I was really curious about that. And so I read the book Traction and talked to some of my founder friends around like how this you know, framework was working for them. And they said it was a game changer because suddenly everyone was on the same page and everyone was clear and aligned. And so in 2018, we rolled out the EOS framework within Flightographer and we've been using it ever since. Um, It's basically the rhythm of the business. So you have your like leadership meeting uh, for an hour and a half once a week. And it has a very strict uh, like format in terms of what you cover in that meeting. And we have uh, quarterly rocks. Um, some people would call them like OKRs, but essentially rocks are like the big things that have to be done in that quarter. And then you fit in the little rocks and sand around it. And so we're accountable to our rocks every week. Like, are they on track or off track? Um, so there's a whole bunch of tools and systems through EOS that have helped manage the growth. And for anyone who's at that stage of going from like, you know, 10 or even earlier to, to a larger team, having some kind of framework so that there's a common vernacular and language and um, everyone's clear around what's expected of them and what success looks like is so, so important. Mm. That's I've, I've made a note of that because I think we'll put that in the show notes. But um, was that a real game-changing moment or was that kind of uh, like a, a turning point in in the company's growth to actually understand and have that framework there? I think it was definitely a turning point and I think the leadership team felt it too like everyone was like very included in the process and part you know part of like rolling it out and I think it also helped the leadership team be able to talk to their teams about what other departments were doing and what else was happening we had a clear North star as a company. We had clear company goals. We had clear team goals. Um, we had like cadences around like sharing this information in terms of our scorecard. So we have like a company scorecard that the whole company looks at once a week that has like 15 data points. Um, so I think the, it just felt like we were more like a grown up company <laughs> instead of, I don't, I don't know how to say it because it sounds so funny, but like, I felt like we kind of grew up a little bit um, instead of like this wild thrashing, you know, startup, just like kind of figuring everything out. That was definitely a, a game changer for us. On that note, I'd be interested to know how many um, rounds of funding you have in total gone through. We've gone through two. We went through an angel round. When then we did a seed round in 20, um, 2018. And so we've raised about 1.7 million Canadian altogether. But our last round was in 2018. And now we're profitable and we don't plan to take further funding. So we're like, I would say one of the biggest, I mean, we, we went through a lot during COVID. Um, had to lay off 80% of my team. It was, it was pretty insane. 
travel just stopped globally as, as we know. So it was, it was, you know, we're coming out the other side, but we're now 14 people instead of 22. So we're much more efficient. We spent the last year and a half automating a lot of uh, like kind of low value tasks and things. And so now we can have a leaner team, smaller team, and we're actually profitable. And we, we intend to just grow more organically and become what I call like an evergreen company. So I'm not looking to become a unicorn and raise a ton of money and grow, you know, like crazy. I want to grow in a sustained, healthy way so that and healthy being profitable, healthy being having a team that, you know, is working nine to five, not crazy hours or hustle culture, but like they have good balance with their life. They love what they do. They feel appreciated and supported. We do work that matters. Um, and that, you know, we have infinite runway because we're customer revenue is, is supporting the business. And that's the way I want it to keep going as. Was COVID a catalyst for, for, for rethinking that approach? Or is that something that you'd always wanted to do to, to have more of an organic growth? I think it was for sure a catalyst. Like we were going into 2020, we were actually on track to be profitable in, in 2020 until, you know, COVID happened. But uh, I think we were still thinking about like, you know, hyper growth and what, like, what are some different ways we can get there through, you know, other, other capital, like whether that's, you know, debt financing or VC or, or what have you. But I think what, for me anyways, we're now a remote company, so we don't have an office anymore. Was that, was that a COVID based decision? Yeah, we got rid of it in October, 2020 after sort of, I don't know, four months of being at home, I just could see the writing on the wall. And um, so we got out of our lease, but personally, I love working from home. I've, I, I did that at Microsoft for many years. I just, I'm an introvert. Like I don't really like <laughs> talking to people all the time. Um, I love being at home and, and just having more balance. So I can pick up my kids from school. I can throw a chicken in the oven, you know, and then I can hop on calls. I, I just think it, for me, works really great to have that integration. But But what's great for the company is, now we can hire across Canada. So instead of just limiting our talent pool to Victoria, we're able to um, bring in people from across the country. And so we have like our, our lead dev is from Vancouver. Our head of uh, operations is from uh, Kelowna. We have people in Montreal and Ontario, uh, our social media persons in Honolulu. So we have like a remote team and um, we're able to like, we're actually currently hiring a director of marketing. And so we're looking across the country for that too. So I think that that's also been a great thing for our business. How, how has that sort of affected like um, the, the, the communication structures as well? Because I mean, it's, I mean, I've recently uh, met people I've been working with for two years in person <laughs> for the first time, which was a bit of a surprise. Uh, and it's always very different when, it, when you're working with people face to face. I mean, how, how have you, how have you solved that? I mean, now that you're committed to being fully remote. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we've solved it. We're figuring it out like as we go right now. And, you know, we, we started doing things like lunch and learns where, you know, one team will present something that, that, that they know about and kind of get to know the team. We do breakout sessions after our weekly all hands where we throw people in zoom rooms with like, you know, a, a question that's like kind of like interesting and they can either answer that and discuss that or talk about what they had for lunch. Like, so trying to like mix people up and give them opportunities for what, what we call water cooler moments. 
where we set them up with sort of like the opportunity for these water cooler moments. So we're just doing things like that. Um, and then we're planning our first annual offsite in Whistler uh, in May. So we're going to actually have everyone fly in and we'll have like three days together as a team. So we've never done that before, but I'm, I'm pretty excited about meeting, finally meeting some of the people that, that we've hired in the last year. Yeah, that's a real, uh, that's a real shift. That is now. I think that that'll be a transformation. I imagine for bringing a team together once they get to to meet and spend a few days together. Onto the, uh, you, you mentioned about the, the the funding rounds before. I mean, how does it feel having raised sort of one point seven million and being accountable for somebody else's money? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's intense. And some of those are friends of mine too, right? So we've got a mix of customers that have invested, friends, and then like, you know, you know, traditional angels. So, you know, especially when when you know them personally, you really want to deliver for them. But I think too, like as, as founders, it's important to have the perspective of they're lucky to be on the rocket ship you're building because you're taking, you know, you're taking like, this is a great opportunity for them. I think in the beginning, I was very much of like, oh, like, thank you so much for like investing, you know, like kind of almost deferential. And now I think it's important to also remember that this is a great opportunity for them. And they, they, you know, they walked in wide, eyes wide open knowing startups can, can crash and burn. And it's a gamble if you invest in a startup, but you also have this ticket to potentially um, ride the rocket ship with the startup. And so, uh, so like, I think that's some important mindset, mindset shift that I learned. And let me tell you, it was really hard to send out the investor updates during COVID. Like our sales went to zero, like we had nothing coming in. And then we had, um, like a tsunami of refund requests because in March it starts to get busy again, it's a seasonal travel seasonal. And so, you know, we had all these, you know, no one was booking and then, you know, 22 employees, big payroll. And then we got like so many refund requests because customers will book up to six months in advance. And they were like, I don't want my shoot anymore. Can I get my money back? So it was really crazy. And so then you're having to write these investor updates and yeah, it, it's not, it's not easy, but I think if you get the right investors, they're going to support, support you throughout the ups and the inevitable ups and downs of, of a startup. And it's important to be like really transparent with them on where things are at and how they can help you. I think that refund situation is definitely enough of a catalyst to make you run really lean and approach your cash flow differently. <laughs> Honestly, it's you, you nailed it. That's so true. I never want to be, I never want to be dependent on like a bank or an external source. Again, I want to always know that, you know, we're, we're okay. Mm, yeah. So sort of self-sustaining, I guess. Yeah. I'm going to ask like a, maybe a, a silly question or whatever, but it is, you mentioned earlier, I, I forgot what you said around what you offered the the investors in the early stages, but do they have shares in the company? Is that what you were offering in exchange? Well, the first round was um, was common shares. So yeah, the, the round in 2015 was common shares. And the second round, we did what's called a safe. It's, um, I guess, similar to a convertible note, but a little bit different. But yeah, we did a safe instrument in the second one. So with the safe, what happens is your investors like will you know invest with a with a cap, and then when you have your next financing, um, you know, round or there's an exit, that's when their shares will convert. Okay, so they still they haven't converted yet at all. Yeah, yeah. 
And you meant the only reason why I was you mentioned not being reliant or whatever. Is there any kind of intention or kind of goal to remove that ownership or shares altogether? from those investors so that it's solely kind of owned by you or whoever or are you happy to kind of keep them in the picture uh yeah no i don't think i will be buying 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 them back um i think that we'll keep them in the picture i have pretty great investors so i've been lucky um i think really for me the the vision for flightographer moving forward is we've expanded from just vacation during covid to now we do local shoots and we do headshots and we're um, this year testing flightographer for business. So we're looking at completely new verticals and like, imagine you're a company that has employees in like 30 different cities and you need headshots for all of them because not everyone's at a one headquarters anymore. Like other ways that we can service um, businesses that need photography services. So we're moving into these new areas and really what we're going to do in, in the coming years is just to continue to grow the vacation side organically, test new verticals and see, you know, um, how those work out, but remain profitable, remain like healthy, remain happy as a team and just like, you know, enjoy life. So, so that's really kind of the, the focus moving forward. And at some point, if there's an exit or, you know, there's dividends to, to shareholders, great. But uh, at this point, not planning to do a big financing round or anything like that. Mm company away days sound like they're ripe for the picking for something like uh flyzographer for sure so uh yeah it'll be interesting to see how that how that pans out but presumably you're still reliant on travel coming back do you have a view of where where travel is is heading as we're coming out of covid potentially or, or learning to live with it at least yeah i think what what i mean what we saw over the last year was people are still dreaming about travel and, and wanting to travel and there's a lot more local travel within a hundred miles where people can do road trips and explore more of their own backyards, which I think is actually great. And instead of just concentrating it into the classic locations of the Venice and the Paris and the Tokyo, people are exploring new destinations. And so I think that's good for travel as a whole. I think the other trend we're seeing is uh, reunions and like uh, trips where people haven't seen family or friends and they're kind of separated. And so we're seeing a lot of uh, bookings around people that finally get to go see grandma. And in so many cases, it's like people have had children and the children are like one or two years old and the family members haven't even met the kids. So there's a lot of like heartfelt sort of like re reunion type travel that, that we're seeing. And then we're seeing like a lot of the delayed weddings happening. And so that for us turns into proposals and honeymoons and, um, you know, uh, like travel around sort of the, the wedding thing as well. So we're seeing a lot of that and like a lot of like best friends getting together or bachelorette parties. There's lots of different uses, but I, what we're starting to see right now. So like it's February, 2022, we're seeing people booking Europe again. So for the longest period of time, Paris was our number one city in the world. And then over the pandemic, it became Maui in Hawaii. And so uh, now we're starting to see Paris book up uh, again. And people are, I think, ready and, and feeling safe enough to go back to, to places like that. We started at the top of the call, you're talking about making that decision on your, when you're 39 and how you would look back on 80, 85. Had you had any entrepreneurial in, in, sort of inclinations before um, Flytographer or was, uh, was, was this the one idea that you'd that just came up and you thought that's the one. I mean, I've had a couple of ideas, you know, and I talked to a couple of friends, but like nothing that I'd ever, ever do anything about. Like, oh, that, this is a problem that I think needs solving. 
oh, this is, you know, I think we could, we could do something here. But I was actually kind of didn't want to go down the path. I've seen entrepreneurs in my life, people in, in my family and whatnot. And it it's a, it's such a struggle and it's such a, it's not stable for a lot of people. Like you can see the ups and downs and cash flow and all those things. And I, I just really didn't want, I didn't want to do it. Then this idea wouldn't get out of my ear. So I had to, <laughs> had to try, try it. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a really interesting thing. Cause I've, I've had that sort of same thing of wanting to have a business, but not finding the right idea. And then, you know, then, then several come along at once, I think is always the way, but like, you know, you, you, you're trying to figure out which one am I willing to take all of those risks for, you know, um, I think it's tricky to find that right idea, but, um, have you got any, uh, is, is there any final words of wisdom that you can leave, leave us with for, you know, for those people who were, uh, maybe wanting to make that move or, uh, maybe looking to take their company to the next stage? I think I would say two things. Number one. There's nothing wrong with starting off as a side hustle and like testing and talking to your your target customers and, um, you know, so that you're not like that panicked and like financially strained and just like see, see what you can get going on the side and um, talk to a lot of customers and, and, and get feedback. But I think the, the biggest thing is you just really have to love what you're building. And I think that is what gets you through the dark times. Like there's a lot of highs and lows as an entrepreneur. And when you're in the pit of despair, it really helps if you love your business and it helps it helps keep you going when, when there's not a lot of light. So I would say if you're just sort of like so-so or like not super passionate about your business, that's something to keep in mind. That's good advice. Well, thank you for joining us, Nicole. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, no, thank you so much. It's been fun. Well, that was Nicole from Flytographer. And so if we ever need to go and book a photographer anywhere in the world, then I know where I'll be reaching out to. Here we go. Yeah. Good idea. Good idea. On next week's show, we have Mark Hirschberg, who is the author of The Career Toolkit. He studied at MIT and gives us a sneak peek at what his life was like in such a prestigious college and how those experiences shaped what later became the aforementioned book, The Career Toolkit. And he probably has the best radio voice we've had so far. So uh, look forward to that. So, yes, look forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> that was That Tech Show. Uh, anyway, so next, so that's it. That's, for, that's all for today. Um, Mark is on next week. As you can tell, we're excited about him and his radio voice. And uh, in the meantime, go and check us out on socials. We're there on Twitter. We're there on LinkedIn. Uh, you can check the website as well, thattech.show, where you can listen to all the 50-plus previous episodes. Uh, you can comment. You can uh, give us five-star reviews on Apple because we like those. It helps us get uh, more people to listen to the show. And that's about it. Well, hang on. What? There's one more thing. What? Tell them about the shackle. Oh, yeah. He likes a shackle. <laughs> Go and drop us a shackle as well and buy me a coffee. <laughs> so long. See you next week.